Welcome back to Jaffa Space, the podcast about food, farming, and environmental education. This season, we are sharing the recordings from the speaker series Acting for Change, Creating Justice, produced by Ecar Farm, an earth-based Jewish farm in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about Ecar Farm at ecarfarm.org. This is also produced as a part of the Shemitah Project, an initiative committed to raising awareness about the Shemitah tradition in Judaism as a relevant commentary on contemporary issues. You can learn more about the Shemitah Project at shemitahproject.org. A link is available in the episode notes. The last episode focused on the agricultural aspects of the Shemitah year. And if you haven't listened yet, please take a moment to do so. It is entitled, Just What is Shemitah? In this episode, we look at a different aspect of Shemitah, economics. Part of the Shemitah practice is to forgive debts and transition private lands into public commons as a way to create economic justice in society. This conversation features co-hosts Hannah Perez-Postman and Adam Brock, and their guest speakers, Greg Watson of the Schumacher Institute for New Economics and Rabbi Rachel Kahn-Troster of Trua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights. They discuss economic justice through the lens of Shemitah, their own path to activism, and what we can all do to contribute to and organize for a more economically just and equitable society. Enjoy. Okay, it is 10 a.m. And so we're gonna start. Um, People are still joining, uh, but I'd just like to welcome everyone. to Acting for Change, Creating Justice, our Shemitah-inspired speaker series where we interview activists and change makers about the justice work that they do and explore the connections between contemporary activism and the ancient Jewish agricultural tradition of Shemitah. So we're grateful for everyone who's joining us. Uh, We have a couple of cohorts across the country, one in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and one here in Denver, Colorado, the Rhythms for Change cohort. We'd also like to welcome all the other individuals who showed up this Sunday morning, um, this first day of spring, to be in this conversation with us. Um, and uh, this conversation is being put on by Ecar Farm, which is a an urban Jewish urban farm in Denver, Colorado, that works at the intersection of food justice, earth-based Jewish education, and community building work. Um, the conversation today is on economic justice with our guests, Rabbi Rahel Kahn-Troster and Greg Watson. This is part two of a six-part series. And you can find the recording for our last event up on our website, which is www.ecarfarm.org backslash And this will also be posted on the Jaffe Space podcast, which is put on by our partners at Hazon. Um, so I'd just like to thank Hazon and our tech guy, Bruce, for being hosts of this series. Um, You can also find resources and discussion questions to accompany this and all of our other conversations on our website by going to www.ecarfarm.org backslash Shemitah-resources, and Shemitah is spelled S-H-M-I-T-A. Because Shemitah is a land-based practice and because Ecar is a land-focused organization in North America, we feel it is important to start these conversations with a land acknowledgement. Um, This one was put together by Adam Brock and Perry Hardeen of the Pearlstone Retreat Center. 
Um, the one I'll speak today is a slightly abbreviated version, but you can find the full version on our resources page on our website. We gather virtually today on stolen land, land that belongs to no one, but that was tended lovingly for thousands of years by Cheyenne, Ute, Arapaho, and other nations whose names have been lost to history. We did not receive permission to be here and no amount of words can do justice to the suffering that those nations experienced at the hands of European settlers. We gather here today in the hope, always present, that love can heal, that the traumas of the past and the present can yet be overcome with compassion and learning, collaboration and graceful action. May this humble gathering serve as a small step towards remembering our true place in the dance of life, a small step on our long path back home. Um, and uh, we invite you all to um, learn about the Native communities in that were and still live in the areas where you live. Um, and you can do so by going to nativeland.ca. Um, and to start this talk, we just wanted to share a little about Shemitah. A lot of you know what it is, uh, but it's always good to refresher. And if you're new, um, we want to just, you know, what is, what is this whole conversation organized around? So Shemitah um, loosely translates to release, and it is the seventh year in a seven-year Jewish agricultural cycle, um, biblical cycle, in which all land that is cultivated becomes commons, and you are not allowed to plant on the land, but let it grow wild, and all the food that grows on this common land is available to everyone, humans, animals, those strangers. Um, and in addition, another aspect of Shemitah is the release of debt. So any debts that have been accrued over those seven years um, during the year of Shemitah, those debts are released. And so this week, we're gonna be focusing on the economic implications of Shemitah and that debt release. Um, and and a transition from private land to commons. So we wanna look at the ways Shemitah can offer an alternative to the severe and growing economic inequality and increasing privatization in our contemporary world. And here are some quotes um, from Deuteronomy that speak specifically to this piece, just to give you some kind of biblical text context. Um, and I'll read it out loud for the people listening on the podcast. At the end of every seven years, you will practice a release the kind of release is that every creditor will release all debt lent to a neighbor. If there is a needy person among you, you will not harden your heart or shut your hand from them and provide them what is enough to meet their need. I command you saying, you shall open your hand to your poor and needy brethren. If your brother has been sold to you and served as a slave for six years, in the seventh year, you will let him go free. And so it was with great pleasure that I introduce our guests for today, uh, Greg Watson and Rabbi Rachel Contraster. We're here to discuss economic justice and the work they've done of activists and leaders to help build alternative economic systems and fight for the rights of those most harmed by our current system. Rabbi Rachel Contraster is, has spent nearly 14 years at TRUA, the Rabbinical Call for Human Rights, most recently as the Deputy Director 
At Drua, she has been the lead strategist on their human rights campaigns and heads the organizing training and training of more than 2,000 rabbis and cantors. She's initiated campaigns against human trafficking and the forced labor, ending solitary confinement, fighting against mass incarceration, and for human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories. Rahel is the original tomato rabbi, spearing Trua's critical partnership with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida and leads Jewish community in worker-led campaigns for corporate accountability. In late March, she will begin as executive vice president at the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, working with faith and values-based investors to catalyze their assets for social change. She looks forward to continuing to fight for farm worker justice alongside the Coalition for Immokalee Workers and for the rights of workers in her new role. Greg Watson is the Director of Policy and Systems Design at the Schumacher Center for New Economics. His work is currently focusing on community food systems and the dynamics between local and geoeconomic systems. Watson has spent nearly 14, 40 years learning to understand systems thinking and is inspired by Buckminster Fuller and can apply that um, and applying that understanding to achieve a just and sustainable world. I was able to hear Greg speak at the Pathways to Regeneration conference this past November, and I was very inspired by the projects he works on and the ways he thinks and links global and local in tangible, impactful ways. And here, moderating our conversation and holding the threads of Shemitah is permaculturalist, regenerative changemaker, and my co-facilitator, Adam Brock. Uh, so without further ado, I turn it over to you, Adam. Awesome. Thank you, Hannah, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, Greg and Rachel, for joining us today and for everybody else who is calling in from Colorado and Michigan and who knows where else. So yeah, I would love to just get right into it with you two, Greg and, and Rachel. And maybe I thought a good place to start would be if each of you could maybe tell a little bit of your journey uh, towards how, how your understanding of our current economic system works and what doesn't work about it and, and what you've done to address what you see doesn't work about it. Um, uh, Greg, why don't, why don't you start us off and then we'll hear from you, Rachel. Sure, thank you, be happy to, and it's a pleasure to be here uh, and to participate in this, in this uh, important discussion. Um, I thought I would begin by just sort of addressing the concept of the wealth gap, uh, just to sort of ground that in a reality. And I'm looking at, um, I live in Massachusetts and a number of years ago, the Boston Globe undertook a study to look at racism in Boston. And um, they published a, a piece that pointed out that the median net worth for non-immigrant African-American households in the greater Boston region is $8. Eight, uh, and they printed that, and then actually had to. The next day, they printed a um, another piece to make sure that people understood that that was not a typo. Um, and compared to white house households, the net wealth, uh, median wealth, is two hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars. So that's eight dollars versus two hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars. And think about what it means that if you're all the wealth, everything that you have in the world. It's $8, any emergency, anything that comes up, you're basically unable to deal with it. Um, that among other things, in, way back when, before even knowing that, uh, 
my journey began when I was sort of trying to figure out how to reconcile what was an apparent conflict between um, achieving the goals of economic equality and environmental quality. Um, I was under the impression that those two goals were incompatible. Um, was called on the carpet by my colleagues at the African American Society at Tufts University when I told them that I had been become an environmentalist primarily as a result of growing up in Cleveland, Ohio on the banks of Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River. Those of you who are not familiar with the Cuyahoga River, it was the river that Randy Newman made infamous in his song, Burn On Big River. It would literally erupt in flames because it was so polluted with flammable uh, pollutants. Um, my African-American colleagues basically pulled me aside. I said, Greg, um, the environmental movement from our perspective, um, it's not merely irrelevant to our cause, that is African-American cause, it's actually sinister. And I queried and asked, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, listen to the slogans, no growth, limited growth. Um, clearly it's a ploy to maintain the status quo, the has will continue to haves, the have nots, where do we fit into this picture? And you've heard similar probably discussions around North South discussions as well. I didn't have an intellectual response to that um, challenge. I intuitively felt the two goals were compatible. I went underground and literally underground. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm an old guy, 72, and those were the days of the whole earth catalog and the alternative um, uh, agriculture and appropriate technology movements. And um, that's where I became uh, introduced to people like Buckminster Fuller, Wendell Berry, and, and spent four years at a place called the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, where we actually started to develop the tools that would allow the reconciliation to happen. Point I wanna make real quick before um, ending this brief discussion is that when you think about the sources of wealth, how does one, how do we build wealth? And uh, I'm not telling anything you don't already know, there are probably two primary ways. One is through land and it could be home ownership or it could be farm ownership, but land is one of those sources. And the other is through businesses, business development. And I'm, I wanna distinguish between business ownership and jobs. Jobs are about income, but that's not wealth building. And so when you, when you, when you think about it in those terms and realize that in this country, 98% of the agricultural land belongs to whites. Um, so 2% African-American, uh, it used to be as high as 14%, land was taken, swindled, cheated. There, many things happen with the system, but clearly that is definitely uh, just totally out of whack. And there were clearly a number of policies that prevented African-Americans not just African-Americans, but I'm focused on African-Americans, but um, from home ownership. I mean, dating back to the Second World War, the GI Bill and FHA, GI Bill was made it possible for many folks to leave the city and, and buy homes in the suburbs following the end of the war. Most African-Americans didn't qualify for the GI Bill, even though they, they, they served in the war. So, um, I, I, I will end just by saying that, you know, taking this whole issue all the way back um, to the, the promise of 40 acres and a mule that never happened um, um, sort of created this, this situation. And I think we're going to have an opportunity. Uh, 40 acres and a mule didn't happen. The great Oklahoma land run where 160 acres are made available to folks um, if, they, if they ran out to the, to the West, helped settle the West could farm for five years, wasn't made available to Native Americans, wasn't made available to freed slaves. Um, 
My, I'm, I'm gonna end real quick with the work at a place called the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, that uh, multicultural neighborhood in Boston, African-American, Cape Verdean, Latino, white. What they had in common was that they were poor. Their neighborhood was devastated, literally burned down to 104 vacant lots. They pulled themselves together by a combination of organizing um, and grit and became the first nonprofit grassroots organization in the country to gain the power of eminent domain over all the abandoned vacant land in their neighborhood and literally rebuilt it from the ground up. It's a long story. I hope we'll have time to discuss it. I just want to throw that out as a, as a teaser now and I'll turn it back over to Adam. Amazing, Greg. Yeah, I definitely want to get more into the story of the Dudley Street Initiative. Um, first, though, uh, Rabbi Rachel, tell us a little bit about your journey. My journey is kind of interesting because it's it's a way I think of where two strands of my life came together and, and brought me into the work that I do. So around the same time that I was starting as a human rights activist at Tura, as I was finishing rabbinical school in 2008 and 2007, and there I was working on American use of torture and the war on terror. And I was really thinking about what it means to really live in a world where you truly believe that every human being is created in the image of God, that that's not something to aspire to. I think we often as Americans treat rights as something that you get if you act right, but actually like human rights are the floor. Um, and they also require like a commitment to every human being um, being having those rights in their well-roundedness. Everyone doesn't just have the right to a job and to an education, but to leisure. And I really think that, that we, how do we live that value in everything that we do? At the same time in my personal life, my kind of foodieism, I was a cook, I really liked that, was turning into a commitment to food justice, right? Actually, and, and, and beginning to realize that often even the food justice movements were not talking about the people who picked the food, right? I think farm workers were left out of the New Deal. Um, they don't, in a lot of states, they aren't able to unionize, they aren't guaranteed minimum wages, only like two, the farm worker bill of rights passed in New York a couple years ago after like probably 30 years of advocacy. So I was also frustrated because I felt that the Jewish food movement was also really, we were talking about know your farmer, but we really weren't really talking about the growing conditions on those CSA farms. And actually, I think there was an assumption that because our farmers were doing the right thing, that they actually had good labor conditions. And those two things are often separate. I hated to tell people that. Um, and one of Tura's second, our second human rights campaign uh, was uh, labor trafficking. I really like looking at human trafficking. And what I noticed was, is that when we often talked about victims of sex trafficking, we would talk about human beings. And when we talked about labor trafficking, we would just ask ourselves, how do we buy a better product, right? Which for me as a, as a rabbi and as, a, as someone motivated by my faith tradition is actually a little disturbing, right? Like, because it's not, the, it's not the, the product that's created in the image of God, it's the human being who picked that product and they, are they need dignity, they need to be treated as though they're created in the image of God. So as part of our anti-trafficking work, Trua, we were really looking to commit, like um, connect that work to the lives of real people. And our new executive director knew at the time, now she's been with us 10 years, like Jill Jacobs had a very strong background in labor. And we met the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida, who are a farm worker led human rights coalition. That's actually really important because they are a coalition led by the farm workers and based on their expertise. So I up in New York, am not figuring out how to solve problems for Florida farm workers. I'm just organizing the Jewish community in support of what the CIW's campaign is. And they realize, you know, um, for Florida farm workers where conditions were really bad at the time when they started doing their work in the 1990s, uh, Florida was called human ground zero for human trafficking in America. And the, how much they were getting paid to pick tomatoes 
um, hadn't changed in, since the 70s. So imagine still making the same wages from the 1970s. Um, and conditions were also very unsafe. I think we know that often that the people cut corners on wages, but we don't understand that also they cut wages, corners on human, on, on, on safety, meaning the right to complain without fear of retaliation, uh, the right to shade, the right to bathroom breaks, the right to water in the field. Um, and because of the consolidation of the grocery industry, farmers were really feeling pinched. And they realized that the power that was, was the power to make change was not just with the growers on whose farms they were picking tomatoes, but with major corporations at the top of the supply chain. It's very unusual, although these days it's becoming increasingly realized that this is important, for corporations to take responsibility for people who are not their direct workers, but on whom they have a huge impact. So the CIW said, we are going to, we at the bottom of the supply chain are going to hold the mega corporations at the top of the supply chain accountable. And they developed what's called the Fair Food Program, which although their campaign started in the year 2000, didn't get implemented until 2011. Basically, the growers who are part of the Fair Food Program, they didn't join until, 2000, um, until 2009, agree to a very strict independently monitored code of conduct, right? It's developed by the farm workers, but we don't just rely on the growers to implement it themselves. They have, like, it's actually monitored and verified. And, and then the major corporations who are part of the Fair Food Program only buy Florida tomatoes from these farms who are part of the program. So they're guaranteeing that they're sourcing from from farms that are, have implemented a code of conduct and they're paying a premium for tomatoes that goes through the supply chain directly to the workers. So they're also alleviating poverty at the bottom of the supply chain. Um, and this campaign started and brought together people of faith and students um, and consumers of conscience to do more than just like vote with your fork, which I feel like is part of the language of the food justice movement, but to actually think like activists and to be in solidarity with the people most affected by, by the poverty and, and poor conditions that farm workers are facing, but also to be led by them in the campaigns. So there are now 14 major corporations who have joined the fair food program, um, fast food companies, uh, like major catering companies like Aramark and Sodexo, a number of grocery chains. Um, and it's really made a difference for the lives of farm workers. I kind of had the ability, I think as a human rights activist, wins are, are hard to see, you know, to actually see the changes being made, does it always happen? And I kind of was lucky. The first time I went to Immokalee was 2011. That was just sort of random. That's when we met them. And that's how we got involved as the Jewish community. People of faith had been very important to their campaign, but not the Jewish community to that point. But the Fair Food Program was just being implemented on the farms in 2011. And it's meant over the past decade of going to visit Immokalee and meet with the, with the, meet with the farm workers and learn from them, I've been able to see the change in the field in real time, where farm workers no longer have to drop their children off at four in the morning before they go to pick tomatoes because they used to sit in the fields unpaid, right? None of us would go to our jobs and get paid, wait for four hours uh, before we got paid, but they used to because they can't start picking till the dew dries. It's simple things like that. We don't, that's a lot of us take for granted as forms of dignity in our workplace. Or um, remember Lucas Benitez, who's one of the founders of CIW said they used to, before the fair food program, they used to call us the hands. They would say, how many hands do we need on the farm each day? And now they call them employees because they're all in the company payroll. Um, and so I think for me as an activist, really seeing both the poverty alleviation, the change in conditions, and really being able to support the farm workers at CIW and now in other parts of the country, uh, dairy workers in Vermont, construction workers in Minneapolis and connecting with other movements abroad as being part of the Jewish community's commitment to economic justice is really supporting worker-led movements for change. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those specific tangible 
examples that you gave of, of what this organizing that, that you're in solidarity with has accomplished because it really, for me, grounds what, what's possible and it, it brings it out of the theoretical. Um, there, there's a theme that I heard in, in both of what you were saying around, you know, both in the Dudley Street Initiative and the organizing of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, both of you really went out of your way to emphasize that it was led by the people most affected. And I think that's something that we hear a lot and that a lot of organizers and activists aspire to. And I'm wondering if each of you can speak to what it really takes to, to get to that place. Um, and what are some of the ways along the way that you can be seduced into going back into thinking that uh, that doesn't need to be the case? I, I wonder if either of you have stories about, um, yeah, what are, what are the pitfalls or, uh, or advantages of, of going that route? Yeah, I'll start just real quick. And I think it's important that when, when the Dudley Street and the residents of Dudley Street had the opportunity to try to persuade the mayor and the Boston Redevelopment Authority to give them this power of eminent domain, which is usually, that's what, what entities use, governments use to displace people, right? We're gonna build a, a bridge or we're gonna like put a, a, a new highway in and you're gone. Um, they debated whether or not they should accept this. Um, the, what eventually happened was the, they said, we will accept this if, and a couple of things happened. One is that the, uh, they would put the land into a land trust and it would be community owned. And that would do a number of things. One, it would also, it would, it would prevent, or at least in many ways, limit the opportunities for speculators and developers to come in one-on-one, -on -one, divide people up, offer them money, speculate, and then take and, and, and dismantle the community. So that was very important. And that also just said that we're trying to build community wealth. And if we can, if we're successful in building community wealth, we can, individuals will certainly benefit um, as a result. But they also said, we want a, an elected board of directors to govern the land trust, all residents. Thir I was there for four years, 30 member board of directors, they met the first Wednesday of every month. And in four years, there's never a question of a quorum because they were making decisions that were determining the future of their community. And it is, it's, it's, it's important, it's empowering, but it's also a lot of work. I mean, there are committees, right? Committees, uh, development committee, environment committee, and that's all the work it's done. If you're really serious about it being resident led, it means there's a lot of work to do. And holding that together, I think in many cases, the challenge, I think what makes the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, by the way, it's 30, it's been in, in operation for 37 years, 225 new homes, 10,000 square foot community greenhouse, um, uh, urban farms, among other things. But the thing that's kept it sort of uh, uh, together that almost flies in the face of some kind of, some types of conventional organizing is that the focus was not on what we were fighting against, it was on achieving the shared vision that the community came up with, an urban village. So I think those are sort of, and, and it, do, it, it does sustain, it's a little even more difficult to, to sustain that vision, but you can do it if you are confident and you have the benchmarks and you know that you are making progress. And that's a lot to put on everybody, but once again, there was not one individual, it wasn't an executive director or president or a CEO, it was the community that was on the spot and it was our responsibility to make it happen. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'll give an example from our work. And I think this, you know, it's a truism in organizing that relationships are important, but those don't happen in a vacuum. They come out of shared work and they allow your partners to really call you in. So um, early on in our work with Coalition of Lockley Workers, we helped, we were part of a campaign win, which was amazing, right? Like, first of all, you should, as activists, you take, you, you live on your wins for a long time. So Trader Joe's joined the Fair Food Program. And we were pretty new to the campaign. And um, uh, at the time, we had not been part of the earlier campaigns. And I had a lot of ideas about like what CAW should do next, who would be a great next target, where do we have a power analysis? And they kind of said, no, Rachel, your job is to organize the Jewish community. We are going to pick our next campaign target. And I had to sit with that for a moment because I think this is like 2011, 2012. And I think, I do think the Jewish social activist space is smarter than this now. But at the time, I, a lot of Jewish campaigns were siloed. I work with a lot of activists who kind of create their campaigns in a vacuum. You know, um, you know, let's go after this company or let's call for a boycott of that without actually thinking about impact or how to support the existing movements. I think a really good example right now is like the question the, the Amazon workers in, in Alabama are, are organizing and it's unclear, right, if the, the calls you're seeing online for a boycott of Amazon and support of the workers is actually what the workers are calling for right now. What they're calling for is to vote in, in the unionization drive. So CIW lovingly said to me, Rachel, your job is to organize the Jewish community in support of our campaigns. And no one had actually said that to us at that point. And I had to sit with it for a few minutes and think, but once you're actually said like, told like stay in your lane and what you're good at, that's actually very freeing because then you don't have to solve all of the problems. You have to devote your expertise to the piece that you're good at and is why you're a necessary partner. And I see that time and time again, where another important piece of our work is that the CIW is not a social service organization. There are ways to donate and volunteer in Immokalee where there's a tremendous amount of poverty, but it's not what they do. And so we would have, we part of why we focused on taking rabbis to Immokalee is we wanted people who could go home and mobilize their communities in support of the national campaign. But of course, a lot of them have students who, who have bar mitzvahs who want to do things as well that are more social service or tzedakah oriented. And so I would hear like, can we donate bicycles to Immokalee? Because if, you know, we notice a lot of people going around on bicycles because it, the you know, if you live further from where you leave for work, it's harder to get there. And I would just have to say, well, that's not like, maybe that's doable, but that's not what we've been asked to do. And so I think if you can also then demonstrate impact of what you have been asked to do, it's just a, a, a way of continually educating people. This is this is our role and here's how we're going to be part of solutions. And it doesn't mean that your ideas are bad, but it's not what's necessary right now. I think that's really challenging. Like, and it's something I constantly wrestle with that what I want to do may not be what's needed. And if I can do what's needed, that that will have other impact. Um, but it, it can be hard, I think. I think one real challenge for highly educated communities um, is to learn to trust the expertise of people who are not traditionally educated. And I think sometimes our like our our, our nonprofit structure rewards people with degrees. Um, and I think we have to trust, like unpacking my own biases around education, especially, has been really important to just say, okay. I may be the expert in what I do, but I will trust people, whatever their educational background and listen to them and follow their leadership. And that for me has been an important recognition um, that that's something I was holding. And then that has been also really important in learning to trust the people most affected. Cause I think a lot of our institutions have those biases. And that's why I also think it's important that when we learn from affected communities that we're not just bringing them in to tell the story of their pain but we're also bringing them in to show their leadership. Um, and that's really key that we're, we don't want some, a farm worker to speak about what's bad. We actually want them to speak about solutions and how we can get involved. Mm, which, which really ties back nicely to something I heard you saying, Greg, about like, 
that that community in Dudley Street wasn't organizing just against something, it was organizing for something. Um, so I want to I want to lean into this idea that that you started to name Greg when you talked about the idea that Dudley Street organized um, as a community land trust, um, which is is one manifestation of, of what you could call a commons, right? This is a, a resource that is is stewarded by a whole community rather than by one individual or one business. And and I'm curious how that idea has animated your work, Greg, and maybe you too, Rachel. Um, and if, if you see any contradictions or tensions between that idea of community stewardship and what you opened with, Greg, of, of the idea of addressing this, this huge racial wealth gap, um, and, and is it possible to, to build wealth for individuals to, to increase that median you know, net worth from $8 to something uh, reasonable when when all of those resources are owned collectively? Well, that's a great question. And there was a great deal of tension when the concept of the community land trust was first proposed. Let me just point out the reason it even came up and was considered as something that needed to be considered was because as the organizing was succeeding and people were seeing improvements in the neighborhood, there were a number of residents who said, uh-oh, I don't see myself in that this is going in a direction where I don't see myself being able to live here very much longer. They could, and, and at that time, what the, the problem was that they saw that gentrification and displacement were coupled and, you, and, and it was inevitable that they were gonna be, again, land values ago. The idea of the land trust gave us the opportunity to decouple, right? Gentrification, which we wanted. We wanted to improve the quality of living, but we didn't want people displaced. So the whole idea though of the trust is you own the home, the community owns the land. And, and in, in doing so, we could sort of turn conventional planning on its head by, as I, as I said before, resisting the um, opportunity or, or, or thwarting the opportunity for developers and speculators coming in and trying to negotiate with each individual over the land and, and, and finding that they could um, sort of divide and conquer. There was a sacrifice though. The, the, the community was asked, here you're looking at residents who have maybe their first opportunity to start building their wealth. And what we were asking is, we're gonna put a little, we're gonna put a cap on it. We're not gonna maximize your ability to, to profit from your land. But what we are gonna do is to guarantee, do the best that we can to guarantee the viability of the community that will sustain the value over time. So there's no question. And I think, you know, it, it was one of these things where some residents said, well, I, I wish that, that was something where, where we had an option <laughs> as opposed to this is the only way that we can do it. It's easier if you say, you know, we've chosen to do this coming in just because of altruism or whatever, it's the right thing to do. But here was that first time, but I think it's a tribute. No, I know it's a tribute to the community and to their, um, I, I get their, uh, the comment made earlier, it, it was, the wisdom of the community, their ability to think in terms of systems and to look at the long-term, not just the short-term and all that came into play, um, but it came into play. And this, I think, it, uh, Rabbi, you'll appreciate this, of days and hours of meetings and um, post-its and discussions. And I mean, and it wasn't always um, pleasant. So anyway, those, I think that's, that's, that's the lesson I got from it. 
Yeah, I think this is also important. Part of why this wisdom is so important and why we have to think about the racial wealth gap is that that helps us push back against, like I think of a very common narrative is which is that that job creation is enough, right? Because job creation can be extractive, and we have to honor the fact that for people who that people who are working like would like jobs, but then we have to push for there to be good jobs, jobs that are sustainable, and jobs that allow them to work in conditions of dignity. Um, and I think that 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 if all we could, so I think often you know we'll hear okay, well you know this this you know that this well if if we do this then the jobs will go away. But if the jobs are you know, maybe it would be better to raise the quality of jobs. I think you know I would love to see Amazon raise its wage and unionize. And it's been interesting because since Amazon does have a higher minimum wage um, than another of companies, it's pushing the minimum wage upward. So I think we have to think about how we create economic opportunity. But we also have to create ownership. Um, and not just simply look at, at short-term solutions, but really like diving into the ways that, that we as, I, I also say that as someone who, who comes from a wealthier community, I think we think of privilege and wealth creation as just like this ever-expanding bubble. Um, and we have to acknowledge that in order for to create a more just society, we're gonna have to give things up, right? For it to be sustainable and that that's okay. You know, um, that in order to really achieve the vision of the community we want, we will have to have less. Um, and that can feel very challenging. Um, but I feel like that's a very Jewish understanding of things, right? That, you know, that I, you know, the idea that like the, the owner of the factory should own, like should have such a big gap with the wages of the lowest person says that actually we should have a more, a, a society where, where, the, where our, our income is more, is less spread out. Um, and so I just think that that's something we have to wrestle with and come to grips with and say, but this is actually gonna be how we are gonna sustain ourselves through this moment, everybody. Hmm. Yeah, and I definitely want to invite the the rest of you all who are who are listening live to to add in your your thoughts and comments. I'm seeing a couple come in, but we're starting to approach the place where we're going to open it up to Q and A from folks. And the way we're going to take those questions is by whatever you put in the chat. So please start uh, putting your questions to Rachel and Greg in the chat. Um, in the meantime, you know, Rachel, since you did start to bring up this idea of of economic redistribution, is a is something that that feels very specific or very uh, that the Jews might be very used to. I um, I want to hear if you have any reflections on how these themes that we've been talking about relate to the kind of overall theme of this whole series of talks of Shemitah of you know this whole year of economic redistribution, debt forgiveness, living in a little bit of a different way off of the land. Um, how, how do you see that, whether it's uh, explicit or not in the work you're doing with the Immokalee workers or any of the other human rights and economic justice work you're doing? Well, that's a great question. I think, um, I think for me, it's just sort of an underlying theme that we live in, that, that systems have to change, right? That solutions that, that don't address systems as a whole, but are really, like they go, they're coupled with strategic interventions um, but if we're not talking about, like, even talking about the system as a whole, that we won't actually achieve the vision of the world we want to see. Um, you know, we, we were looking at the beginning of quotes from Deuteronomy, and I love the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, where you know, it says, there shall be no needy, and then the needy shall always be among you, right? So those are, there's like, the, where you're striving towards, you may not get there, and then there's the reality, but it doesn't mean that you, you should lose sight of that first vision, right? And so you have to handle the world as it is, and think about the world that you want. Um, that can be hard. I think also sometimes it means acknowledging that there aren't solutions, right? I, I find often sometimes that for those of us who 
for whom solutions have benefited us or who, who just want to, who are impatient, right? I'm very impatient. I want to see things happen. Um, that like just sitting in the challenges of this moment can be hard and waiting, you know, and say, okay, maybe what we just have to acknowledge right now is hard. Sometimes it's like human rights activists, we get told, well, what's the solution? And the, the answer is, is no one's human rights should be violated. Um, and so it may be, you know, but so then we, one of the systems that would create a world where that was possible. Um, and I think Shemitah is part of, is part of that intervention. It's saying, it's a systemic way of saying we need to keep the wealthy from getting too wealthy. We need systemic ways of raising up people who are poor and that we need to reevaluate it on a regular basis. I was I, I was listening to a podcast recently that was talking about the fact that like uh, something which I already knew, but the, you know, the, the fact that the tipped minimum wage hasn't gone up since the 19 since 1991, I think it's, it's been a long time. Um, and like that means that this, we already know the minimum wage needs to go up. Right. But the fact that we have another wage that hasn't even gone up in even longer is just continues to be shocking to me because it says we have systems in place to keep things at least from completely falling apart. And yet we fight tooth and nail to prevent that um, because we're we're acting in support of the owner class. And um, I think as we need to say that's not OK. Right. Like that we need to uh, that part of our strategic interventions and, and continually reevaluating the system that we're in is saying that we at least have to make sure that we're supporting people's dignity. Um, I am, it's amazing that we are supporting fight for 15, that that's becoming the norm. Yeah, you know, as when you work for a long time, you can see like how conversations around certain issues shift. $15 an hour is not enough. It's not enough to allow people to live with dignity. Um, and I think that's really an important piece of the Shemitah conversation as well, that it says, God says like, you know, God says, do not harden your heart because you, you might be tempted to protect yourself right before the Shemitah year. You might stop loaning. And that's not who you are as a human being. Your, your job as part of a member of society is to be generous. Can I, can I just add real quick, just because on this on the issue of dignity, I think it's so important. And while I've been emphasizing sort of the home ownership and land sort of a part of the, the LHG, there's another important movement and that goes with, with business ownership. And there are many obstacles. I mean, so the jobs are important, but also what about the ownership of, because once again, I think the ownership of businesses is where the other major opportunity for wealth creation comes from. But, and my son works in this field, but they're organized unions and they will do whatever they can to preserve the status quo, which means women and minority owned businesses, um, we can't find them. They don't qualify. We're a contractor. We would love to meet some quotas, but we certainly, we just can't find them. They're no qualified folks out there. So that's that's a major obstacle too that needs to be addressed. And that's an organizing piece. It's organizing the, you know, the small business owners in ways that maybe they can cooperate and collaborate and 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 come together to take advantage of a big opportunity, but then disaggregate as they were before and, and back to their own. So it's gonna it, once again, it puts the burden on them to to address an injustice when you kind of felt that because the system isn't going to do it, really the system isn't going to address it. It's it's it, and I mean it all the way from whether it's the unions to the government, whatever they're going to the status quo will continue to happen unless one the inequities are clearly identified and then it's up to them to actually suggest some of those workable solutions to 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 resolve it. Great. Yeah. We have uh, a wonderful question from Daniel, which which I think is maybe directed a little bit more towards you, Rachel, but Greg, of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. 
He says it's easier to convince like-minded folks to give up some of their wealth to shift society to a more just world. How do we start to convince less like-minded individuals that hold the power in monetary slash political wealth to start to think differently about their wealth? Hmm. So I think that the we change the system and then hope they change their mind. I think that's why like government exists is to redistribute wealth to some degree. Um, I don't think I, I, I don't think a strategic organizing, a good tactic is to wait for people to change their minds, right? Like uh, a lot of strategic organizing says you don't wait for your target to have a change of, of heart. So I would like to see us create a more just tax system that addresses systemic inequality, that funds our social safety net and funds, you know, um, uh, allowing people to live with dignity. Um, I do think that a piece of that will involve also them hearing from their peers. There are some organizations like um, oh, the Patriotic Millionaires, they're working on tax policy, people like Abigail Disney, but they're still outliers in their field. There's no incentive. And I, so I, I, although I would like to think we can change them, I also think we just have to change the system to make it work for more people. Um, and it can be very hard to hear that the system is not working for others. I think I work with communities who are convinced that, that they got where they are by themselves. And I think actually helping people understand the systems that have enabled them to maintain their wealth is important. It won't necessarily change their minds, but I think it, it, it is important for people to understand that shifting perspective. Yeah, and I guess I would add that, and I, I'm almost reluctant to use this term, but I think it is important that you have to take advantages of changing the narrative about the way you, everybody assumes the world works. And you think about big agriculture and, and, and the inevitability that, that big farms are more efficient than small farms. But then, and, and this is where you kind of do a little bit of your own history digging and go back to Earl Butts and the, you know, in the Nixon administration where he determined, or at least the administration, get big or get out. That was not something that said, you know, we've done a study and we determined that, no, what they decided was that their market was Wall Street, not Main Street, right? We're selling commodities. If, if you're if you if you listen to that narrative, the 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 strength of agriculture was in the commodity of farmers, right? And what we grow in our farms in Massachusetts, you know what the Department of Agriculture calls them? They're specialty crops. So what do you mean specialty crops? That's what everybody eats. But the designation is the spinach and corn and potatoes, specialty crops. So you've got to try to figure out how do you start to do that and Take it, I hate to say this too, but but I think we're seeing this happen. Take advantage of unfortunate sort of circumstances. The pandemic has really exposed the weaknesses of our agricultural system and the supply chain and the importance of being able to purchase locally. And you know, that's where some of the innovations with, with things like masks and, and social distancing in public places was the, the, the farmers markets because people said they're so important we want to maintain this this institution so we will come up with our protocols so i think that's got to be part of it take the initiative change the narrative and take advantage of every opportunity to sort of say you may think this is the way the world works but we're going to sort of give you an alternative mm. yeah i i really resonate with that greg of the idea of really first understanding and then and then strategically trying to shift what is the deep story we've been telling ourselves that's led to this you know horrific uh, inequality of working conditions and wealth and and only once we shift that story of this is the way it has to be this is the way it's always been only then can we start imagining alternatives and, and working towards them um, and and I actually want to 
uh, use that to, to highlight a question that Sue asked, which is about each of your own journey as change makers. You know, we started uh, by each of you telling your story, but, but uh, I wanna go back to maybe the very beginning of that journey for each of you as change makers. What, what led to each of you? What, was there a specific moment you can remember or at what point in your life did you, you know, start to, to tell that story to yourself that like, it's my role to help solve these challenges, um, no matter how daunting they feel like part of who I am is someone who's going to help fix this. Because I, I think for someone, uh, for someone who's not, you know, has a, has a career like each of you do of decades of successes, that can just seem so overwhelming and intimidated. So how did you even take that first step? You want me to start? Okay, uh, uh, but I, 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 it's, it's interesting, it's a, good, it's a good question. And I will say for me, um, it was certainly, and, and it, I, I don't know that I could say that I have a career path. I, I basically have been presented with opportunities over time and I would actually say, although we didn't get into some of the, the you know, the past positions, like, you know, I was the commissioner of agriculture in Massachusetts Renewable Energy Trust. And I honestly, when I say this, I actually mean it. I wasn't qualified for any of the jobs that I had. I, I really wasn't. They were opportunities, the situation presented itself. But the, the initial piece was my introduction to community garden organizing, a group called the Boston Urban Gardeners. And this organization was bare bones run by two women, Judy Wagner and Charlotte Kahn, but it was an honest to goodness network. They, they, they got anybody and everybody to participate in this entity called BUG, Boston Urban Gardeners. And, and that meant everyone from you know, um, uh, residents, gardeners, the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts at that time was John Kerry, right? Who was Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, but he, he helped. And then they just came up with these uh, off the wall ideas about how to support community gardeners. Um, and they worked. And this is, I'm giving you the honest truth. It made me feel good. I had never felt this good before seeing how you could get all these disparate people to come together. And the, and the one incident that sort of made it was that we needed topsoil for community gardens, you know, because everything was lead and we didn't know how to do it. Somebody mentioned that 75 miles away at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, they were building a biotechnology park and there was a lot of soil made available through excavation. And it was like, I forget how many cubic tons of, of soil. And, and Charlotte and Judy said, how are we gonna get it here? They contacted the National Reserve, uh, the, the armed forces and said, could you transport the soil from Worcester to Boston? And saying the worst they could say is no, they thought it was a great idea. They did it, we paid for their turnpike tolls and gave them lunch and we got the soil. Now, what that meant though, real quick was that we, that we had to understand both the political and the cultural climate of the time, because if we tried to do that today, we'd probably be lambasted for abuse of, you know, use of the military service. But back then you could do it. So you've got to take the temperature of everything and say, what, you know what, this could be a great PR piece, we could do it. So that to me, the Boston Urban Gardeners was my first taste of what I, because we didn't have an organizing culture in Ohio, at least in Cleveland when I grew up. So that's where I learned. 
I think for me, it's like a moment of looking back and realizing everything made sense. I really think that a commitment to organizing that isn't about extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. It's about ordinary people, you know, getting involved. And I, so I, I just want to say that, that like, you may look at us and be like, oh, you have these incredible careers doing this work, but really it's, it's about getting involved and, and, and meeting other people who inspire you to, 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 and making you feel like you make change. So I went to rabbinical school. So like, again, if you look at my career path, like it somehow makes sense that I'm here, but actually it doesn't. Um, what I would, my, my father, my late father was a Jewish environmental activist. Both my parents were involved with various forms of activism while I was growing up in Canada. Um, when I was in, I, I went to Barnard and was involved in some stuff on campus, but I wasn't, didn't think of myself as an activist. I just did things along the way. Um, and when I was in rabbinical school from 2003 to 2008 was really during a lot of the, the, the growth of a lot of the Jewish social justice work that we see being done right now, including a lot of the Jofi work and the, and Chazon was really being built up at the time. Um, so there were a lot of opportunities for me as a rabbinical student to think about my work as a justice lens. And right before I came to Trua, I was working at Congregation Beit Simcha Torah with Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who was really the first activist rabbi I had seen. Like she got herself arrested twice the year I was there. And, and I think, and I, I even remember the first sermon, my first weekend, where she gave a justice sermon that was different than I had heard. So I was, it was a different cultural context. And so then I had the opportunity to come work at Trua right before my last year of rabbinical school to work on a and become a human rights activist as my rabbinate. And once I did, then it became, it made sense that I had ended up there, right? It just made sense for me that that was my work. And I think what's inter been interesting for me over the past 14 years is that I think for a long, because I was relatively young when I went to rabbinical school, I started when I was 24, I graduated just after I turned 29 and it was a huge part of my identity. I, I sort of like, like I would joke that I only, was only pretending to be a rabbi that like my actual identity was human rights activist and I was using my rabbinic title as a way to get access and opportunities. Um, but I think over the past few years, especially when we were in resistance mode under the Trump administration, like really leaning into discovering what being a person of faith of being a Jewish faith leader meant for me um, and developing kind of not the Jewish language to think about my activism, not because of what I had been taught, but what felt authentic to me. So I think it's always a conversation about how you, and also meeting extraordinary people who inspired me, right? And, and, and being in the right place at the right time. So I just, I think there's all those threads have, have brought me to the activism that I'm doing and I think will fuel the work that I do going forward. Yeah. Yeah, really appreciate both of those stories. I, I think that adds a lot of richness and and hope. I think for me and hopefully for other people listening, of like you know, just find find the people that inspire you. Start getting involved in what they're doing, and and just take it one step at a time. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of of really amazing questions come through in the chat that unfortunately we don't have time to ask. Um, so I'm I'm just gonna close us out. Um, with, with situating ourselves in just kind of where we are here today on, you know, the first day of spring, um, hopefully seeing the light of the tunnel of this crazy pandemic year and, and being able to emerge out of that as more people get vaccinated entering into this year in the Jewish calendar of Shemitah. Um, so as we stand in this moment, which, which feels to me really like a pretty unique moment in history, what, what is the hope, the blessing, the vision that each of you have uh, for, um, for how economies can be different now than they've been in our lifetime.
So I definitely think what the economy we have is unsustainable. Um, and I would like us to really commit to everybody so that no one is left behind and to think about returning ownership and wealth and redistributing it more. Um, that that is, is the only way that we can sustain our planet. Um, and to think about how to, how to be less involved with things and more involved with people and planet. Um, for me, I think a huge shift over the past number of years is people coming to understand that, that climate justice is a human rights issue, right? Um, and so my hope, you know, the, 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 the verse from the Torah that has guided a lot of my work is, is this is a very opportunistic translation of a verse from Hosea that says, um, plant justice and harvest the fruits of goodness. And for me, I think that's important because I think if you look at harvesting, it seems inevitable, right? You knew how the story would end, right? Like, but actually when you're, when you plant it, I actually have to go plant my seeds for my, my garden this afternoon. Like the harvest is not preordained. It's really hard. And when we only see our activism or our work on justice through, through what happened at the end, it's not, you know, I, I've, you know, it's, it, it wasn't clear that that's how the story was going to end. And so and it takes a lot of hard work of planting and growing to make that harvest possible. So I would encourage people to really think about what we have to invest now to get that harvest that we want um, in the years ahead. Wonderful. Yeah, I, like that. That. Um, I, I guess for me, I, I'm getting some encouragement from um, just inquiries and in some cases solicitations through the Schumacher Center for from coming from municipalities, for instance, that say we want to um, explore what options we have for developing strategies for circular economies um, and, 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 you know, describing what that means in terms of really monitoring what comes in and what, you know, goes to minimizing what goes in, into the wastering and I think to a certain extent, it also suggests that they understand that that being local also means though that you've got to use the old idiom. I think it was um, Hazel Henderson that said, you got to think globally and then act locally. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. And some of it is that there are going to be some, our own inconvenient truths that we're going to have to deal with. And as we, for instance, the the, the, the green economy Yes, green, but you know what? We've got to be mindful of the fact that that even if we're going to deploy the, 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 the wind turbines, and I did that for a long time in the solar panels, there's mining, there's extraction that's associated with that. And the question is, can we even start talking about responsible mining? Or because you're not going to eliminate it. And we need to be honest with each other and transparent about what this is going to mean. But of course, in the end product, it's very different than what they that, that what you get in terms of oil and, and natural gas. So I, I think that sort of the reality and the realism, but also sort of a, the practical sort of approach to thinking what the these new economies are going to look like is healthy. And I guess I, I got to end because I, you mentioned that my my 40 year sort of uh, mentoring from virtual mentoring from Buckminster Fuller I, I do think that our understanding of systems, the more we get into it, and I think City and everybody's starting to realize that every system has what he called one or more points where you could apply the trim tab. The trim tab is that point of leverage where you don't need as much money as you may have thought you needed or resources that you thought you may have needed to actually bring about the kind of change that you're looking for. If you can, if you can understand where those points of leverage are, sometimes the major resources that you need 
are people working together, cooperation and collaboration. Amazing, such inspiring language uh, from both of you. Um, and just uh, really wanna, again, appreciate both of you taking the time to, to share your wisdom with us uh, in the middle of the day on a Sunday. Um, I know that that's not a, a light commitment to make. Um, so again, really thank you so much for, for helping both of these cohorts as well as anybody else listening really think about uh, connecting the dots between Jewish faith and the Shemitah year and um, how that can inform uh, really thoughtful efforts uh, to change our economies. Um, so thank you again uh, to those of you uh, listening in. Thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you in a month for our next conversation.